Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, let's stand together and read in unison verses 7 through 12. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 12. Together. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him, who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory, who first trusted in Christ. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Lord, we are always thankful for Thy precious Word. We are thankful for the promise that it will not return void. We are thankful that every Word of God is pure and is given for the profit of doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. This is one sentence that we just read. One sentence from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, down through verse 12. We see redemption mentioned, and we see an inheritance mentioned, and so my preaching from this sentence could be entitled Redemption and Inheritance. But in the middle we have something else. It's revelation. It's because God has abounded toward us in showing us His wisdom and prudence by revealing to us the mystery of His will. Now the word revelation is not in the sentence, but all you have to do is go another ten verses in this first chapter, and you come to the 17th verse, where Paul is praying for the Ephesian church, and he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know. And he goes on to describe things that we can learn from the information contained in the Bible and applied and taught to us by the Holy Spirit. So it's redemption and revelation and inheritance that we want to get out of this sentence. We began with a sentence that covers verses 3 through 6 that described to us the electing and predestinating grace and glory of God, and which was according to the good pleasure of His will and the praise of His glorious grace in those matters. But that election predestination was toward something, and that was to put us in the Lord Jesus Christ for the blessings of redemption and our eternal inheritance. And so it's time that we want to look further at this sentence. 
Last Lord's Day, we basically made our way through verses 7 and 8, briefly mentioning verse 9. This chapter of Ephesians 1 should be one of your favorites. This chapter presents the truth of the gospel kept secret since the beginning of the world and for most Christians even today. They don't understand the things taught in the first part, like election and predestination and being made accepted in the beloved. They don't understand that our eternal inheritance, we were predestinated to it as verses 11 and 12 teach us. They don't understand the exceeding greatness of His power, which was necessary for any of us to ever believe the gospel, as is described in verses 19 and 20 of this chapter. They don't understand, they don't believe that Jesus Christ is now, presently, far above all principalities and powers, thrones and dominion, might and every name that is named, not only in this world, but in the world to come, because they're still looking for some millennial kingdom that's going to come when Jesus will really be a king. Well, Jesus is really king right now. In Revelation chapter 2, he said that he already holds a rod of iron as the scepter of his kingdom from his father, and he's dashing the nations in pieces, and all you need to do is look at a political map of the world or a political globe, and you can see that what was once single or double or triple empires in the world is now dashed into 300 plus pieces of independent sovereign nations. He has broken the world in pieces. And he, by having all power, has sent his apostles into the world and the gates of hell did not prevail against them, but they preached the gospel and it made its way even to the North American continent where in the Piedmont of the Carolinas, we know the gospel. We're very blessed. I described to you the hopeless problem that we are in by nature, but we know it well enough. Let's review quickly verses 7 and 8. In whom we have redemption. Redemption is an economic term meaning to buy us back from the claims that God has against us by our breaking His law and Adam breaking His law. Someone needed to buy us back, and that is to pay off the claim against us. The claim was a threefold death. Death of our bodies, death of our natures, and eternal death in the lake of fire. And the Lord Jesus Christ paid off that debt in full. We want to notice the first two words of verse 7. Because I've tried to emphasize this to you. In whom? In whom? It's all in Christ. All the blessings, the spiritual blessings that are in heavenly places for us are in Christ. Those spiritual blessings. You know, there is a, a wrong emphasis When people talk about heaven, they want to talk about the streets of gold. They want to talk about no more crying. Well, why are you crying so much? You say you're making light of it. I am. Because it's far inferior to the real blessings of heaven. And the real, I don't care if I cried through eternity. To know that I was a son of God, justified, sanctified, reconciled, redeemed, my name in the book of life, saved from the lake of fire, and a joint heir with Christ. Now, I wouldn't have anything to cry about if all that were true. But the point I want to make is when it says all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, 
Let's think about the big ones. Let's think about the real ones. Let's think about the ones that Paul lists over and over and over. If I were to ask you, find me the place where it says there's no tears in heaven, all of you would have to hunt and look because it's only mentioned once. But all these things are mentioned repetitively for us to appreciate these great blessings. And I am thankful that He shall wipe away all tears and all pain and all sickness and all death will be done away. All things shall be made new. But we shall be the adopted sons of God, redeemed of the precious blood of His Son. I gave you an assignment yesterday in my preparatory email to you about reading. I told you that in chapter 1, because it is doctrinally dense about the matter of our union with Christ, there are 23 occurrences of the preposition in. Twelve of them, in one little chapter, apply to our salvation in Jesus Christ. For instance, remember how we started with verse 1, where it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, in Christ, according as He hath chosen us, in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. In love doesn't count. That doesn't say specifically that we're in Christ or in Him or in whom. It's in love. So you see, there's 23 occurrences of that preposition in, but 12, and we just covered three of them. Verse 1, verse 3, verse 4. There's 12! We want to love the fact that we're in Christ. There is the greatest assurance for your faith. When God looks for you. You know, when some of you are afraid of God coming to look for you, when you read verses like, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, you don't like the idea of God coming to look for you. But when God comes to look for you, do you know who where He has to go? He has to go to the Lord Jesus Christ, His only begotten and well-beloved Son, in order to find you. Because you're in Him. Whenever He looks at you, you are in Him. You say, but what about when I sin? You are in Him. Do you know how I know that? Because when you sin, the worst thing He does to you is chasten you. And what does His chastening prove? That He still loves you. You're still in Him. You can't get out of Him. You can't be separated from the love of God. Amazing, isn't it? I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Do you want it to stop there? It doesn't stop there. Which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus Christ paid the price for them. And if they're in Him, their sins have been washed away and they've been given His perfect righteousness forever and ever. And we are complete in Him, as Colossians 2 and verse 10 would teach us. Look at Galatians back. It's just back a couple pages. I want to keep you at Ephesians 3, but just drop back to Galatians chapter 3, a couple of pages. 
And here's a little confusion caused by some that I hope won't confuse you. Galatians 3 and verse 27 says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And there they go. There goes the church of Christ, the followers of Thomas and Alexander Campbell. There they, there they go. Galatians, they've got Galatians 3.27. That the way we get into Christ is we're baptized into Christ. Do you remember this morning the little bit of time I took to explain the difference between whomsoever and whosoever? God does some things to us long before we any do anything for Him. This verse comes so much later in the scheme of salvation that the Bible presents. Because the Bible presents the greatest transactions that are the basis for salvation occurred before the foundation of the world. They occurred before the world began. Where were you? The only place you existed was in the mystery of His will. He had you in His everlasting covenant, in His eternal decrees of His infinite mind, and He doesn't need a head to hold His brain. He is infinite intelligence. And it was the mystery of His will that had purposed He would save you by His Son, Jesus Christ, neither of which existed at that time, but which in the fullness of time both would be brought forth on earth. And here we are. And so when we look at a verse like this, and there are a few others, we want to understand that this is just our practical phase of salvation. This is just our practical relationship to Christ. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ... When we get baptized, we say, we're Christ. He is my Lord and my Savior. I am now in Him. He is over me. He is around me. I am His. I am now in Jesus Christ. I was chosen in Him before the world began. I was seen by God in Him on the cross of Calvary. But now I'm claiming Him as my own and I shall live for Him the rest of my life. It is way too late to get you into Jesus Christ legally. It's way too late to get you into Jesus Christ eternally. It's your practical relationship with Him. You know, they love verses like that because baptism is so easy, it takes just a couple of minutes in the water, and you can say that you're in Christ. But 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, Behold, all things are become new. Now there's a relationship with Jesus Christ that takes more than a couple of minutes and H2O. That's the way you live your life. And so you live it practically in Him. This verse is far too late. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21 says, The like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, because it's already been put away by the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. How can you have a good conscience before you're baptized if it's the baptism that saves you and puts you into Christ where you can then have a good conscience? Baptism is the answer of a good conscience because Jesus already died for you and gave you a good conscience as Hebrews chapter 9 describes very carefully. That's the only thing that could give our consciences the freedom from our sins is to hear the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ dying for us. 
And so they have no case here because it's far too late. And 1 Peter 3.21 tells us this baptism doesn't put away the filth of the flesh. So who's going to put away the filth of our flesh? The Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. By the circumcision made without hands, He cut off the sinful nature of our flesh. We need to come back to Ephesians 1. We'll leave the Campbellites to themselves. Way too late. And before you can even get in the waters of baptism, what do you have to do if you're a Baptist? You have to believe. If you believe, what has to have already happened to you before you can believe? You've had to be born again. If you're born again, what had to have happened to you before you were born again? Ordained to eternal life before the foundation of the world. So that it says in places like Acts 13, 48, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And then as many as believed get baptized, but it's all wrapped up in the electing and predestinating purpose of God for us. Redeem's a wonderful word. We just sang it. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Amen. It's a wonderful term. We need to move on. Our redemption in Jesus Christ is not an offer or a possibility. When we look at verse 7, it says, In whom we have redemption through His blood. That means we are in possession of it. It wasn't offered to anyone. It wasn't a possibility for anyone. It was a transaction to and for all those that God had chosen in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. So it says, in whom we have our redemption. Look at Hebrews, holding your hand at Ephesians chapter 1. Hebrews 9 is just too important to miss. While we looked at it briefly at the Lord's Supper last Lord's Day, Let's look at it briefly again right now. When Jesus died on the cross, He said, it is finished. What in the world was finished? His body? His life? Or the reason for His death? The reason for His death, the redemption of His people. He ascended into heaven and presented Himself before God through the eternal Spirit and was accepted. By God. I want to read to you verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. That was 2,000 years ago. That's before you were around. That's before you could do anything to cooperate. That's before you could do anything to access a offered redemption. But redemption wasn't offered except to God. He offered Himself once to God, and He obtained eternal redemption for us. You say, where does it say He offered Himself to God? Verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Those that He redeemed can have pure consciences, and thus they want to be baptized to give the answer of that conscience toward God. But verse 12 that I turned you here for says He entered in once having obtained eternal redemption for us. 2,000 years ago, the legal phase of salvation was completed by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise His glorious name. He obtained 
eternal redemption for us. He doesn't offer it. He offered himself without spot to God, and God accepted him. And because God accepted him, we were made accepted in the beloved because we had been chosen in him before the world began. You're in Christ where our redemption is and where it was long ago obtained. Verse 15 tells us, And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, we believe that redemption has means. There is means to getting redeemed. The means of his death. Do you understand? It's not the means of you doing anything for someone. It's not the means of you doing anything for yourself. It's the means of Jesus Christ dying. For this cause, he's the mediator of the New Testament. That by means of death. How do we get redeemed? By Jesus dying. That's the way. That's the means. For the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Notice two things in this 15th verse. Redemption and eternal inheritance. Because that's what we have in our one sentence from Ephesians chapter 1. Redemption and eternal inheritance. They're both in Christ. They're both by Christ. That they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Jesus died to redeem us and to guarantee our eternal inheritance. You are guaranteed in heaven. You were predestinated to it before the world began. Jesus died in the fullness of time and you are guaranteed heaven. How do I know, Pastor? How do I know that I'm one of God's elect? How do I know He's predestinated me? Remember the times that have been taught to you on how to make your calling and your election sure. There are lists given in the Bible of the things that you ought to be doing to make your election sure. You can know, beloved, your election of God by things that you should do because a natural man would never do them. A non-elect reprobate would never do them in sincerity. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, they are the work of faith. Not just saying, I believe, but belief that changes your life. The work of faith. The labor of love. Not just saying that you love the brethren. Not just praying for them, but laboring for them. And the patience of hope. You have such hope of heaven that it causes you to cheerfully endure the little negative events of this life. That's the evidence of being God's elect. Because only the elect will do it. Only the elect have their life based on faith. And so it causes them to work, to love others, and to labor at doing so, and to have such a hope that it gives them patience through life. It's not girding yourself up and being a tough human being. It's girding yourself up as a Christian based on your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The work of faith, the labor of love, the patience of hope. It's taught in the pages of Scripture. God knew you would ask the question, how can I know I'm one of God's elect? When you come to 2 Peter chapter 1, where it says, this is how you make your election sure to yourself. This is how you can know your elect. It starts with faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. When Paul and Silas told that to the Philippian jailer, they meant it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing you do to show that you're one of God's elect. Because reprobates will never believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But the apostles never stopped with that. That's why Peter would say, add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. 
And to knowledge, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, temperance, and to temperance, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. There's eight things mentioned that you should be adding successively, and the crowning jewel is not faith. The crowning jewel is brotherly kindness and charity. And I hate taking so much time, but listen, brethren, we want to be sure of our redemption. We want to be sure of our eternal inheritance. And we're going to get to some of this confidence that we can have in verses 13 and 14. But we're not there yet. So I'm cheating and telling you ahead of time about making your calling and election sure. Let's get back over there to Ephesians chapter 1 and look at our redemption, revelation, and eternal inheritance. Oh, you just saw precious verses that say your redemption was based on the means of Christ's death. It's not waiting for you to activate it. You know, some people like to hand out a tract that's a check. This check is drawn in the bank of heaven. Jesus Jesus has made a great big deposit there. He's made a big deposit of a billion dollars. A billion dollars of the souls of men. All you have to do is write yourself in the line as the beneficiary. And you can have eternal life. Because Jesus has already endorsed the check. Oh, the things they come up with. I'm trying to figure out right now if that or the Catholic Mass is worse. I can't tell. So I'll flush them both. Jesus didn't write some check for you to put your line as the beneficiary or the payee of that check with him being the payor. Do you know who the payee was? Almighty God in heaven. Right. He paid God his own precious life and its blood in order to redeem us. Did God cash the check? Absolutely. God accepted everything done by the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so we are redeemed. In the purpose of God, which is the eternal phase, we've been redeemed since eternity. In the legal phase, which is the death of Christ and the cross in the fullness of time, we've been redeemed for 2,000 years. Since you heard the gospel and believed that it was about you, and you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and were baptized in His name and put on Christ, it's been a few years or a few weeks, months, or decades. You've been redeemed. And all you were doing then by putting Christ on was to lay claim of it with your own faith and to embrace it as yours. It didn't change your status in heaven. That had been established before the world began as this chapter wants us to constantly remember. The economic price is the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, based on that, since God paid the price of His only begotten Son to Himself, to Himself, God did not pay the Lord Jesus Christ to the devil. The devil didn't have the claim on us. God had the claim on us. God paid the price of His Son Therefore, it says in the Bible, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit. We are bought with a price, so we're twice God's. He created us, and we owe Him everything just as His creature, but He saved us by the blood and death of His Son, Therefore, we owe him twice because we've been bought. 
we've been purchased. Slaves of sin, condemned to death, we've been pardoned, redeemed, taken off of death row, and made joint heirs with Jesus Christ of his eternal inheritance. In whom we have redemption. For whom is this great work of redemption and forgiveness? We, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Who are the we? The saints, which are at Ephesus. Who are the saints? Those that have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and changed their lives to live a sanctified life. That's what the word saint means. A sanctified or holy person. You say, well, how do I know that I'm in that group? Well, ask yourself, are you living a holy, sanctified life? And look at the other clause of verse 1 of this chapter, where it says, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Are you faithful to everything Jesus Christ wants you to be doing in your life? Then the redemption is to you. Because it says, in whom we? And who are the we? The apostles and the saints and the faithful. You're not an apostle, so there's only one way you can get into this we. And that is by being the faithful saints of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we embrace that as well. We come to verse 8. We notice in verse 7 that the forgiveness of sins is included as part of redemption because buying us back through His blood, our sins were forgiven and all of it All of it was according to the riches of His grace. God's grace is incredibly rich. That's why it was preached to you a number of months ago, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 8, wherein, that is in the riches of His grace, He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. God's grace in saving us is the greatest display of wisdom and prudence in the history of the universe for God to be able to save us. And we looked at some of those things last Lord's Day. We just sang a song written by our brother. What endless wisdom. Were you thinking about the words as you read through it? And sang through it? Our songwriter Matthew was telling us about some of the things that God did in saving us that involved great wisdom and prudence in order to save us. You know, when you think about it, you could go on and on forever. If I was to list every aspect of our redemption that involved wisdom and prudence, where would we stop? It's an incredible drama. It's a mind-blowing transaction. It's an incredible, overwhelming plan and design that He had for us. He determined all these things before creating. It's not a mere remedy or a response to anything. It's all by design according to the mystery of His will. He prepared the lake of fire before the foundation of the world for the devil and his angels. He prepared the heavenly kingdom for his sons and daughters as well from the foundation of the world. He let his arch enemy, the devil, have some success to magnify the victory of a man over him, the man, Christ Jesus. I mean, this stuff, we could really entertain ourselves for a while just by thinking of what God has designed in the plan of salvation. He was able to satisfy His justice while displaying His wrath and power for the glorious praise of His grace. By having two categories of men, vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. He saved men, but He passed over angels, though they are far superior creatures. He sent His only begotten Son as the substitutionary sacrifice for His own justice. A Son that He didn't have until He purposed to have a Son. 
Incredible. What king would choose to have an only begotten son to send that son to suffer torture and death at the hands of enemies to redeem those enemies and to adopt them as his sons? Nope. I just short out trying to think of that. But this is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news and glad tidings of what He has done for us. A virgin birth to take Adam's genealogy out of the way and replace him with God. Allow a scam trial that ends with sinful men convicting and condemning pure innocence. A crucifixion death to involve much greater pain, suffering, and public shame than many ways of public death. Resurrection from the dead to remedy the fact that the firstborn brother of you and me was dead. But he raised him from the dead. Paul loved to preach that. Talking about how they with wicked hands have crucified the Lord of glory. But God raised him from the dead. Peter on the day of Pentecost. But God raised him from the dead. You guys think you got rid of Jesus of Nazareth? But God raised him from the dead. Do you know how important that resurrection was? For sin not to have kept Jesus in the grave, but he came out of the grave having won the great victory over sin and death, demonstrated by tearing the bars away from his tomb. God gave him a life in this world in order to be a great high priest for us. If Jesus Christ had not lived in this world, he would not know how to relate to us. God cannot relate to you. God has never been tempted with sin. God cannot be a priest to Himself. God had to send Jesus Christ to be a priest who has endured all the temptations and is touched with the feelings of all our infirmities. Part of the glorious plan of salvation. He promoted Him far above the greater angels and the whole universe for His life and death. He adopted us, not just forgave us, not just justified us. He adopted us. He's given us an inheritance of the universe to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. He's going to resurrect even our corrupt bodies from the grave. Do you know why they put them six feet under? Do you know why they locked them up in several degrees of coverage in a coffin, then a vault, then six feet of dirt? Because they stink. The human body corrupts terribly, grossly, and creates diseases. It's horrible. But it's coming back together again by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a, this is part of the mystery of the gospel. The world doesn't know about it. But that body is coming back to life. The apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. Now wait a minute. If it's a mystery, how can you show it to us? Well, it's only a mystery to them outside this room. It's no mystery to us. Jesus Christ is coming back and is going to raise our bodies. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Amen. Orville, do you still like that? I know you do. So do I. And it's a, you know, I just like the play on words. Behold, I show you a mystery. It's a mystery to them and it was a mystery to us before we heard the gospel. But after we hear the gospel, it's no mystery. It's our hope. It's our plan. It's our future. It's our guarantee. He's the first fruits of them that slept. And we shall certainly follow Him. 
in the resurrection. Angels are now our servants. He informs us secretly of this salvation by gospel preaching. He identified Rome in the mystery of iniquity. 2 Thessalonians 2 describes the mystery of iniquity. Revelation chapter 17 says, Mystery! Babylon the Great. No mystery to us. Do you know why they had to call it a mystery in the New Testament? Because Rome was the ruler of the world. They didn't need epistles flying back and forth between their churches saying that Rome is the great enemy. That wouldn't do, that wouldn't do your health and future very good, nor would it help you pass the second grade or get into medical school. It, that just didn't happen in the New Testament. There was great discretion used, and while it's a mystery to many, and it's a shame that most Christians today don't even know who the man of sin is in Second Thessalonians 2, we do, by His grace and by reading Daniel chapter 7. It's not very hard. You know, we, we know that there's a mystery of seven stars and seven candlesticks. I'm thankful for the seven stars, and I hope you are as well, but I hope that you're thankful for the seven candlesticks. It's called a mystery. But we know something that's going on in this world. They can count the population up and come up with 7.5 billion or whatever it is at this particular hour, but there's one more among them that they can't see. <clears throat> now there happens to be an innumerable company among them that they can't see either that are the angels, but Jesus Christ is walking among his seven golden candlesticks. It's a mystery, but it's explained to us in the first two chapters of Revelation. You know, the Bible says that there's a mystery that a portion of elect Israel would be blinded to the gospel in order to push the apostles and other preachers of the gospel to us Gentile dogs. But it's no mystery to us, is it? Because we've read Romans chapter 11. But it's called a mystery. Thank you, Lord. God has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence through gospel revelation. You got to read a wonderful chapter last Lord's Day, last Lord's Day preparation, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that tells us that the, the princes of this world do not know the real wisdom. They have wisdom. They're esteemed for their wisdom in the things of this world, which is very slight. They really don't understand economics. They really don't understand politics. They don't really understand how societies function and work together as much as the Bible teaches us. But there's a whole other category of wisdom they know nothing about, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ and the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. Right. I hasn't seen it. Ear hasn't heard it. The heart of man hasn't imaginated it. Imagined it. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. Amen. What things? Even the deep things of God. Unbelievable. He has revealed them to us. And so when we look at verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 1, we want to rejoice in the fact that God did exercise all wisdom and prudence in saving us, and He has abounded toward us in our salvation, and He's made these things known to us. You know, the apostles came to the Lord Jesus Christ when He was speaking in parables, and they said, Lord, why are you speaking in parables? Because it is not given to them to know the things. Because it is not given to them to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to you it is given. And then He would explain the parable to them. And he said, there have been many righteous men, there have been many kings, there have been many prophets that have wanted to know these things and have not known them, but you know them. Blessed are your ears for hearing the things that you hear. Blessed are your eyes for seeing the things that you see. We are blessed, brethren, because he's made known things to us. I am moving into verse 9, having made known unto us 
the mystery of His will. Thank you, Lord. There are secrets with God, and He reveals them to us. If you'll hold your hand there at Ephesians 1, let me entertain you with a couple of verses from Job chapter 11. This is Zophar speaking, and what he says here is the truth. You know, those three wise friends of Job spoke the truth. They just applied it incorrectly to Job, that Job was not a hypocrite. What they wrote about God is true. The only quotation of the book of Job by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament isn't Job or Elihu. It's Eliphaz. Job chapter 11, verse 5. But oh, that God would speak and open His lips against thee. This is Zophar calling on God to speak against Job. And that He would show thee the secrets of wisdom. They all knew that God knew things they didn't know. And that He would show thee the secrets of wisdom, that they are double to that which is. Now, I just kind of like that, okay? It's got an exclamation point there. Charlie, the secrets of wisdom that God has are double to that which is. If you take all the knowledge in the world and add it all up, God has secrets that are double to all of it. I like that. I thought you might. Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. Poor Job. Canst thou, now let's get back on track. Canst thou by searching find out God? No. Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? No. It is as high as heaven. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell. What canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he cut off and shut up or gather together, then who can hinder him? For he knoweth vain men. He seeth wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? For vain man would be wise, though man be born like a wild ass's colt. We come into this world just like a wild ass's colt comes into the world, and men think they're going to be something. But God is so far infinitely above us in all of His knowledge and understanding of all things, and there are secrets with Him, and His knowledge is double. That's just an expression of speech, brethren. His knowledge is infinitely greater than ours. And, but, but God's revealed things to us. And so in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 8, He has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. How do we know that of God's wisdom and prudence in saving us? Verse 9, having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself. What was His good pleasure that He purposed in Himself? That He would elect a certain people in Christ Jesus who would die for them and make them holy and without blame before Him in love. That He would predestinate them to be sons of God by adoption through Jesus Christ to Himself. That He would make them accepted in the Beloved. That He would redeem them. That He would forgive their sins. And He would give them an eternal inheritance. These things are unknown to the world. There's no university you can go to. It doesn't matter whether it's Columbia, Harvard, Yale, Wharton, Stanford, U of M, or Clemson. She doesn't belong on the list, but anyway. It doesn't matter. You cannot know these things. They're revealed to us by God. Having made known unto us. And you know, it came to men by illiterate preachers. 
Peter, he wasn't a learned man. As soon as he would start to speak, they knew that he was not learned. But they knew he had been with Jesus. Because the things he spoke of were things pertaining to the kingdom of God and the rule of Jesus Christ over the universe and the gospel of the mystery of God's will. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. God, in his will, in eternity, had a purpose. And that's why verses like Romans 8, 28, that everybody likes to quote, and all things work together for good to them that love God. That's, they just blow that, those words out constantly. All things work together for good. All things work together for good. Well, why don't we read the whole verse so that we can really embrace it? Right. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. All things don't work together for good if you don't love God. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. And then His purpose is explained to us in the next two verses in Romans chapter 8, which they do despise, that God has predestinated us to be conformed to the image of His Son, that we might, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestinated, them he also glorified. And I left out a couple links of that golden chain of salvation because it's all just as sure. It's all past tense. We shall be glorified. This is the mystery of his will. His eternal purposes in Christ Jesus of all the good things that we learn through the gospel. And God allowed us, God chose us to be born late in the third dispensation of the world. The first dispensation is from Adam to Moses. The second dispensation is from Moses to Christ. The third uh, dispensation is from Christ's first coming to Christ's second coming and His eternal kingdom. We were blessed to be born at the latter part of that third dispensation so that we get to look back and see things clearer, plainer, and more thoroughly by God's Word. You know, I've mentioned mysteries already, that if you were born in the first century A.D., after the cross of Christ, after His resurrection, you would not know some of the things that we know, because history has revealed them to us. If you were to read Daniel chapter 7 in 100 A.D., you'd be hard-pressed to be able to explain the ten toes and so forth of that Roman beast. But, you know, we we can look back and say, well, that's a no-brainer. That's so easy. By His grace. We, We were able to look back and see so much of the mystery of His will. He had a He had good pleasure. Remember this morning when I read to you and explained to you briefly Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, Jesus gave the reason why God reveals truth to some and blinds others because it seemed good in thy sight. Everything gets traced back to that. And here we have it right here in this 10th verse, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. It's internal to him. God existed infinitely, eternally, independent of all creatures and other beings of which there were none. And within himself, he chose and determined that he would create, that he would save, that he would judge and condemn. And all of it is to the praise of his glory. 
some by a display of His wrath and power on them, and some by a display of His glorious grace in saving them. But it was according to His purpose that He purposed in Himself, and it was all for His own good pleasure. And that is what we believe. That gives us our worldview. We look at everything that's going on in the world, and we say, God was in charge of that. God's in charge. There's nothing out of His control. We think of Psalm 76 and verse 10, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. Any wrath of man that occurs on this planet is for the praise of Almighty God, and He is using it for His praise. Just give Him time for Him to show you the full working out of His eternal will. These mysteries are no longer mysteries to us because of the gospel that's been preached to us. Thank you, Heavenly Father. When we come back, we'll look at verses 10, 11, and 12. But notice so far, in verse 7 we have redemption. In verses 8 and 9, we have revelation. And in verses 10 through 12, we have our gathering together in Christ and our eternal inheritance that's part of that eternal purpose that He has purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The things of the gospel are beyond description. It's called the unspeakable gift. It's called the unsearchable riches. How do we explain it other than to just declare it the way that God's written it to us? We can't go beyond Scripture. We don't want to come short of Scripture. But do you understand what is written here in this first chapter of Ephesians? It is fabulous. It is wonderful. It is the mystery of His will. You know the mind of God. You say, that's a, that's a strong statement, Pastor. Well, why don't you try Paul's on for size in 1 right. Corinthians 2.16. It says, we have the mind of Christ. Amen. Because he's given us a new nature, and he's taught us the gospel, and we know, we know how Jesus thinks, and we know how God thinks toward redeeming us, because it's been revealed to us. He wants us to know. He's made known unto us the mystery of his will. 